Hello, this so is Father Mike Father Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Lord, Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered, but the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and the basis for the study and to be able to put that in hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. We ask this in Christ our Lord. All right, so we're going to start off with uh, 1 and 2 Peter. And uh, these are those books that are toward the end of the Bible. And a lot of times what people do is they make these little resolutions that I'm going to read the New Testament or I'm going to read the whole Bible. And somewhere before Peter, they peter out. So anyway, hopefully this will give you a, uh, a little bit of an introduction. But the good thing about these letters is they are so short, you can read them very easily. And with the difference in flavor, like once you start reading Paul's letters, you start seeing a pattern. And uh, the good thing about some of these is that they're so short that you can still see the pattern, but you don't have to read 100 different letters of St. Paul to get to it. And it's slightly different in some of the theology, but the overall view really does show a, a consistency in the overall gospel. One of the things that you will notice a lot of times when you're reading different commentaries on, on these different letters of Scripture, they'll say, well, this is so closely theologically um, similar to St. Paul that, you know, it has to be that there's some connection there between the author and, um, well, a lot of times what it is actually is what we call oral tradition, that the early church was so consistent in their pattern of teaching that whether it was written by St. Peter or St. Paul or St. John, there's an overall theme that tends to come with that. Um, basic overall, what they call kyriigma, which was just the overall basic gospel message. And especially toward these later books, because since they were written in a particular time, they were looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. And in the meantime, they had some basic themes that they emphasized. You know, remain faithful, um, watch out for false teachers, um, you might be persecuted, but persevere in your faith. And in the end, um, Jesus will come. We don't know when that will be, but when he does, um, we're going to have the uh, resolution uh, to all of the promises as well as the end of all the problems. So we, we're going to see that in St. Peter pretty well. So this is uh, what they call Catholic letters, um, similar to St. James. It was a letter written not just for a particular church, like St. Paul's letters, some were written to Galatians or Romans or you know, these particular churches, whereas um, James and 1 and 2 Peter, as well as Jude, were written to all the churches. So they're, they're a little more uh, broad in scope. That's why they call them the Catholic letters, um, not because uh, they're Roman Catholic letters, but because Catholic means universal you know, in its original sense. So Peter actually is, of course, the apostle. We know that. Um, when there's um, some question about who actually wrote the letter to Peter, um, some people say that the theology is so similar to Paul that it couldn't have been the real Peter. Um, others say that, no, it was the real Peter. It was just that that oral tradition was very strong. Um, some will say that First Peter was written by Peter, and some will say Second Peter was actually written by a disciple of Peter or or someone else who was affiliated with the teachings of St. Peter. And actually, the, later is, the latter is probably the case. Uh, the first um, letter of St. Peter is, um, there is pretty good evidence, and it's good possibility that it actually was written by Peter. 
the second letter just seems that it came um, late enough. And the, the tie-ins, for example, with the uh, letter to Jude showed that uh, it probably wasn't specifically Peter. Or it may have been something that has the kernel of Peter, but because um, the subsequent churches that were using it may have added um, to kind of fill it in a little bit and may have even added sections of the letter to Jude, which there's a section in there that's pretty similar. But anyway, so that's just kind of the overall view. Of course, you all know who Peter is, uh, the rock. We're going to hear about him this weekend. And he was martyred. Um, either in 64 or 67 A.D., depending on um, which persecution that people tend to think he was martyred under. Um, most tend to think that it wasn't really Nero, but Diocletian. So they're, they're tending to pick that one, which would have been 67 A.D., which is just before the fall of the temple. All right, so this is all around. A lot of things are happening in the Roman world and in the Jewish world and in the Christian world around this time. Okay, so um, there are, as I mentioned, Pauline connections, and um, some of that actually could be because when you you read the book itself, it talks about Silvanus and Mark. Of course, they were traveling with Paul, so they've got a connection with both Peter and Paul. And uh, it was very common, as you know, that they would have secretaries or scribes that would write down their thoughts, and the scribes and the secretaries actually would get a lot of latitude um, to be able to, um, you know, change things around just a little bit as long as the essential elements would remain the same. And um, some of them, like even in one of Paul's letters, he specifically mentions um, someone else, you know, writing with him. You know, so some of that um, is just the way things were done back then. Nowadays, you get one person, they write it, they may have someone proofread it, but the primary author would be the same person, where back then it was very common that they would say, you know, well, let's say I'm Peter. Well, I'm going to get Sylvanus to um, write this for me. And this is what I want you to write, so go ahead and do it. And then what even might be possible is there is a church, like let's say Shepherd of the Valley. So someone from Shepherd of the Valley or, or a group from Shepherd of the Valley starts writing down some thoughts. They want to give it a little more credibility, so they say, well, Father Mike wrote this. So anyway, that was common back then, and it wasn't looked at in any strange way. It was just the way things were done. Now, we, in our literal weird, uh, weird ways, I guess, in the United States, we well, wait a minute. If Peter didn't write that, how come it says, you know, I, Peter? And it's like, well, because they didn't look at it as forgery. They looked at it as, well, the thoughts come from Peter, so therefore he is writing it. You know, it's kind of like when you talk about Grandpa. You know, well, you tell a story about Grandpa. It may or may not be totally accurate, but it is in line with the way Grandpa would act. You know, we do do that. So anyway, the uh, purpose of the book, and uh, 1 and 2 Peter for that matter, is to keep the faith in trial and to preserve the proper understanding of the gospel and of St. Paul. Because there were some people that were taking St. Paul and kind of going off in the left or right field. And so Peter is, is trying to rein him in a little bit. So in the content, though, we do have some, some different thoughts here. Um, first of all, the very beginning gives an idea here. He's talking about um, Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to all those living as aliens in the dispersion of, and then he kind of goes on to the different places of the cities and churches. Well, if we're aliens, where is our home? 
We should know the answer to that one, right? Heaven, yeah. So our true home is heaven, so we're aliens. So we are living in a world that is not quite home. God is still present, but this is not the final stop. And so anyway, he starts that from the beginning. Well, that would make sense if the church is suffering a lot of persecution because there are going to be some that want to conform to the world and those people who want to conform, Peter would be saying, look, you're an alien. You, know, you don't need to conform to the world because we have a unique identity in Christ, which is different than the cultural norm of the day, basically the Roman cultural norm of the day. So also keep in mind that when you hear words like world, especially in John, um, you, you don't need to take that so literally so that it means, you know, like we don't really live in the world like the actual earth. You know, we do. And it's not like the earth is bad or even the world is bad. That word is kind of a, a metaphor. It, it symbolizes um, corrupt, um, worldly ways. You've heard that before, like worldly ways. So it's not like the world is bad. Um, it's more along the idea of the worldly ways. So saints, and uh, he uses that word, the holy ones. Um, saints are made holy by obedience and by being sprinkled with the blood. Okay, so what is that referring to? If you go back to Moses, there was the purification ritual of sprinkling, right? So they would slaughter the, in the sacrifice, and they would sprinkle the blood, and, and specifically with Moses doing that, um, that was a sign of, of renewal of the covenant and purification all that. Well, in the new covenant, what do you think that would symbolize? Well, okay, the, the lamb who is Jesus, yes, but the sprinkling itself. Purification, cleansing, baptism, yeah. Because the, uh, the, you know, he's talking about that, that purification that happens sacramentally through baptism, and we'll see something more about that too. Um, but anyway, he, he starts that off from the beginning. So the promise is constant. Okay, what's the promise? That is the promise of heaven, but also the promise of life in Christ. Um, so that's constant. He says, so be ready and be alert and remember the price. Okay, so if we look at chapter 1, verse 18. For you know that the price of your ransom from a futile way of life handed down from your ancestors was paid not by anything perishable like silver or gold, but in the precious blood of a, a blameless and spotless lamb, Christ. Okay, so he's talking about the gospel being free. You know, grace is free, but it's not cheap. You know, that it came at a very high price, and so we should call that to mind and remember that. Um, why would he say that? Because people who are being persecuted might not appreciate that, yes, we're being persecuted, but what Christ offers us is more precious than gold, silver, or any other worldly thing. So why would you forsake that? Remember the high cost that this came to us from. And so that's, you know, kind of an overview from that. So we do have rebirth by sacrament and word. So if we look at um, chapter 1, verse 23, this will be the word part. Since by your obedience to the truth you have purified yourself so that you can experience the genuine love of brothers, love each other immensely from the heart. For your new birth was not from any perishable seed, but an imperishable seed, the living and enduring word of God. Okay, so the rebirth we experience comes about through the word of God, right? So that's the gospel, the word, you know, the word of Jesus, the Bible. Um, and incidentally, in every sacrament, um, there's always a connection to the word of God. 
So it's not like baptism is separated from the word of God. Everything is supposed to be unified in that. Um, Also, if we look at um, the sacrament of baptism itself, look at uh, chapter 2, verse 9. See if I find that. You are a chosen race, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people, a personal possession to sing the praises of God who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were a non-people, and now you are the people of God. Once you were outside his pity, now you've received his pity. So this, this new priesthood being brought into priesthood, the priesthood of all believers, this goes back to Moses as well. There were the priests of Aaron, and there were also priests that were Levites, and then there was what they called the priesthood of all the Israelites, that they shared um, the priesthood of all believers. And so, so Peter is saying something similar. Yes, there are priests, but you all share in the priesthood of all believers. Um, it's also the teaching of the church from the beginning that all of us through baptized share in the ministry of Jesus as priest, prophet, and king. So to this day, you'll hear that about the priesthood of all believers it's it's different than the uh, you know the consecrated ordained priesthood, but it nevertheless is a real priesthood that we are initiated into through baptism. Okay. Now, so we should win others to Jesus by our example. Okay. So chapter two, verse twelve. I urge you, my dear friends, as strangers and nomads, to keep yourself free from the disordered natural inclinations that attack the soul. Always behave honorably among Gentiles so that they can see for themselves what moral lives you lead. Okay, once again, if we are living in Christ, we have an obligation to demonstrate that new life so that others would be attracted to the same life in Christ. You know, lead by example. It's pretty straightforward. Okay, now, um, here is also a pretty good quote that you may have heard before. So it's chapter 3, verse 15. No one can hurt you if you are determined to do only what is right and blessed. Are you if you have to suffer for being upright? All right, did you hear that? There was a beatitude. You know, like the beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor. You know, blessed are those who mourn. Well, this is a beatitude, actually, that Peter's throwing in there. So blessed are you if you have to suffer for being upright. Sounds pretty similar, right? Blessed are those who suffer for the sake of righteousness. So this goes back to Jesus' original Beatitudes, and he's placing it in here because he's trying to let people know that when they are suffering persecution, as the church was in this time, that they are still blessed. Okay, so, so therefore, he goes on, Proclaim the Lord Christ holy in your hearts, and always have your answer ready for people who ask you for a reason for the hope that you have. So what, is that, what does that sound like? Always be ready to have a reason for the hope that you have, to be able to explain the reason for your hope. So if someone comes up to you and says, for example, you know, why do you believe in heaven? Why do you believe in, in salvation? Why do you believe in forgiveness of sins? Why do you believe in the Catholic Church? Um, we should be ready for an explanation of those things. And realistically, I, when uh, I was in seminary, I, I had all these different questions that I looked and it was part of what they called apologetics so that you have a reasonable answer that people ask you things. For example, they're going to ask, you know, well, how do you explain purgatory? Well, I knew that was going to come up a lot, so I really looked into it and made sure that I can really explain purgatory well. 
Not because I personally care so much, but I know that's one of the questions that people ask. So therefore, we should be always ready to be able to give an explanation for our hope. Now, you notice he doesn't say, always be ready to argue and win. You know? Because I can tell you there are many times that I've argued and won, but I never really won. Actually, very often. I mean, there were, there were times when I'd be arguing with someone, and it's like, you know, I've basically laid it out here. There's no way that you can counter what I said. Why don't you believe? I just don't. Okay, well, that's because we were arguing. You know, it wasn't, well, let me, let me just kind of explain to you why I think and believe the way that I do. One is much less threatening. So anyway, but nevertheless, we're supposed to be equipped. We're supposed to have an answer. And frankly, Catholics don't really have a lot of good answers. The Catholic Church has a lot of good answers, but a lot of Catholics just kind of, they pretend that they don't know the Bible. And they actually do, because they hear it all the time. And then they pretend that, well, I'm Catholic, so I don't have to have, you know, an explanation for the faith. It's like, well, we do. You know, we're supposed to be able to do that. So anyway... If you're not totally comfortable there, then you're being challenged by St. Peter. All right, so now here's something explicit about baptism. Chapter 3, verse 18 through 22. Christ himself died once and for all for sins. Okay, remember that once for all thing from Hebrews? Okay. The upright for the sake of the guilty to lead us to God. In the body he was put to death. In the spirit he was raised to life. And in the spirit... He went and preached to the spirits in prison. Okay, so this is the death and resurrection time. They refused to believe long ago while God patiently waited to receive him in Noah's time when the ark was being built. Okay, so here we have the ark, right? In it, only a few, that is, eight souls were saved through the water. Okay, those were no, that was Noah and his family. It is the baptism corresponding to this water which saves you now. Okay, so what did the Noah water do? Remember, it was purification. I know it wiped everything out, but it also purified the earth. So in a similar way, um, he's making a reference to the waters of baptism, connecting it to the waters of the purification of Noah. In the baptism corresponding to this water, which saves you now, not the washing off of physical dirt, but the pledge of a good conscience given to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has entered heaven and is God's right hand with angels, ruling forces, and powers subject to him. All right, now, this also talks a little bit about this ark kind of being like the church, you know. So, But anyway, that, that kind of goes on a little further than it needs to. But the idea is pretty simple. So he's connecting baptism with salvation, the word of God, and the idea that we're supposed to persevere through our faith. You know, so we have been saved, so to speak, through baptism, but we're supposed to be living that out in the way that we treat others and morally, and we're also supposed to be um, connecting these you know, sacraments of salvation with the word of God. So just as you know, the, the sacrament cleanses us, so does the word of God. So you see the intimate connections there? So that's why, for example, in Mass, we have the Eucharist and the word of God, you know, that they're really not supposed to be separated. But that's a whole other thing. All right, so then later, he talks about suffering and how that connects us with Christ. This is the beginning of chapter 4. As Christ has undergone bodily suffering, you too should arm yourselves with the same conviction that anyone who has undergone bodily suffering has broken with sin. Because for the rest of his life on earth, that person is ruled not by human passions, but only by the will of God. 
So if we're suffering persecution of some sort, then we're letting go of you know, our power, our position, and even our, our will sometimes. We're, we're actually giving that over to God in a similar way to the way that Jesus let go of everything in his humility, um, suffering even death for the sake of the will of the Father. So in other words, Peter's saying, when you find yourself suffering, connect that to Christ. And he doesn't mean do it in, in kind of like a trite way, you know, like, I'm just going to offer up my sufferings for the sor- poor suffering souls of purgatory. I mean, he's, he's talking about it like, remember that we really literally are connecting our sufferings to the sufferings of Christ. And just as that led to our salvation in Christ, it also leads to, you know, the process of salvation um, in, that, in that context. Okay, so then later he's going to talk a little bit about these elders and so he says, I urge the elders among you as a fellow elder myself and witness to the sufferings of Christ and one who has a share in the glory that is to be revealed to give a shepherd's care to the flock of God that is entrusted to you. Watch over it, not simply as a duty, but gladly as God wants. So he's talking about those who have leadership in the church. We also have an obligation to be good shepherds, just as Jesus was. And he's also talking to the younger as well as the older um, saying the younger need to persevere and kind of gain experience, and uh, the older need to respect the younger, but at the same time care for them with uh, the same compassion and care that Jesus has. So that was chapter 5. And then he basically says, say hi to everybody. All right, so for Second Peter, um, this actually is similar in some ways to First Peter. Um, I already talked about um, who may have been the author most scripture scholars will say that the author was not actually Peter, but there is a connection to the teaching and um, the maybe it goes back to some kind of oral teaching of Peter, later got written down, and the church or the community around him who knew him very well and intimately eventually put this together. And the reason was that it wanted to warn against false teachers and reassure those waiting for the second coming of Christ. Okay, you notice the false teacher thing coming up quite a bit? So toward the end of the first century, between, especially between like 65 and 100 AD, there was this, um, the church was trying to keep their unity, and they were also trying to preserve that um, apostolic teaching. And every time there would be threats to that by some outside teacher, the apostles as well as St. Paul and, and the other authors of the New Testament, they would be very adamant on rejecting that and preserving the um, what they would call like the deposit of faith or the, the, the tradition that came. And that tradition actually is not like, I'm not talking like traditions like how we kneel and stuff like that. I'm talking traditions like the actual belief system, all right? Keeping um, the accurate belief system that the apostles taught intact, all right? So that was huge for the early New Testament. And actually, even today, it's pretty huge. When people start going off in different directions, the churches, the official church always tries to keep people in the middle, you know, like within the proper boundaries there. So for some of the content of Second Peter, he says that we are shares of the divine nature. I don't know if you've heard that before. St. Augustine wrote about that quite a bit. That, for example, when we receive communion, we are partaking of the divine nature. We are sharers of the divine nature. When we are in heaven, you know, we are not God. We still have our, you know, own personality and everything, but we share 
in the divinity of God because he offers it to us as a gift. Does that make sense? It's not too hard to understand, I don't think, but um, it's just that God gives himself, you know, not externally, but he even enters into our very souls and our very hearts. Also, if we look at um, the way that faith is, once again, he says that faith is supported by an active Christian life. Uh, Chapter 1, 5 through 9 explains that. Um, God does not change. All right, let's see. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. All this shows that the Lord is well able to rescue the good from their trials and hold the wicked for punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who follow the desires of the corrupt human nature and have no respect. Okay. I, I missed it there somehow. God does not change. Okay, so basically it's the whole, starting from verse 4, he's showing a pattern in history that God has continued to act today just as he did back then, and the ways and the means of God you know, are constant and consistent. So there are times, for example, when people say, well, you know, God 200 years ago was like this, but now God's different today. Well, God's not different today. <laughs> Maybe we are different today. Um, maybe back 200 years ago they didn't understand something about God or they were overemphasizing something that wasn't entirely accurate, but today we've got the same problem. You know, we actually don't have everything perfectly yet. You know, there are, there are parts of the way that we understand God that is probably not entirely accurate. Now, the official teaching of the church, people would say, well, that's accurate, and you can say yes, but, for example, when the overall opinions of people in the world are a certain way, you know, does that mean it's true? No, it doesn't mean it's true. Because there is a um, universal and consistent truth that comes from God who does not change. Okay, so he kind of talks a little bit about that. Also, there's an interesting part in here, chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. They may promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruption, For if someone lets himself be dominated by anything, then he is a slave to it. All right, that's nothing new, right? If you let yourself be overcome by sin, you will become a slave to the sin. And anyone who has escaped the pollution of the world by coming to know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then allows himself to be entangled and mastered by it a second time ends up being worse than he was before. There was a parable where Jesus was talking about the demons, you know, and saying, okay, someone cleans out the house and everyone, all the demons leave, but then they leave the doors open so all the demons come back and he's worse than before. Anyway, it's kind of a a parable way of saying the same thing. That once you know better, you can't just go back to your old ways and be the same as you were back then. You know, it'd be like if an alcoholic starts drinking again, you know, they are actually worse off than they they were when they started. Well, anyway, that's just an analogy. But the idea here is that once you know, um, you can't forsake that knowledge, fall back, and then think somehow that that knowledge that you have gained along the way is not going to um, convict you in some way. Makes sense, I think. All right, so chapter 4, verse 13 What we are waiting for, relying on his promises, is the new heavens and the new earth where uprightness will be at home. 
Now, the book of Revelation talks about the new heavens and the new earth. St. Paul talks about the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus does um, in different ways. But the idea here is that we are in process, but there will come a time when Jesus comes again, and all that we see and all that we know on earth will be transformed and transfigured in a similar way that Jesus' body was resurrected and transformed into a resurrected body. This, this whole world that we know it will change in that way. There will be an end to sin, there will be an end to death, and there will no longer be any, um, any elements of evil in all of creation. Now, you can ask how that actually happens. It's like, well, we could say, well, Jesus does it. But, I mean, how it happens literally and metaphysically, we have a hard time explaining that because we don't know because we're living in a three-dimensional um, world. Uh, the closest that we can do is look back on Jesus' own um, resurrection and say, okay, well, how is his body? It's still his body when he rose from the dead, but it's different in many ways. So in the same way, I guess, that analogy would have to apply to um, the new heavens and the new earth, that the earth is still the earth, but it is being transformed in a way that is similar to the transformation that happened to Jesus' own body. For that matter, our own bodies will be transformed in a way similar to the way Jesus' body was. Sometimes people say, well, when I die, I'm going to be a star in the sky. You know, and it's like, no, you're not. When, when I die, I'm going to be like an angel. It's like, well, you can be like an angel, but you're not going to be an angel. You've heard that, right? You know, Daniel, you're a star in the sky. What is Elton John? And then there's also the, the ones about, um, you know, you've heard this common expression, you know, someone that I loved had died, and now he's, a, he's an angel. It's like, no, he's not an angel. He's still a human being but he doesn't have the resurrected body yet. There's also the uh, conception that people say, well, I hate this body. I can't wait till I die so my soul can go to heaven. Well, eventually, you're going to get that resurrected body again, so you better start loving your body, you know? <laughs> so it's going to be different. So if those of you who might not like your, uh, you know, your sore rotator cup and bad back and all that kind of stuff, don't worry because that will all be fixed, you know? And, and you will see yourself, though, in, in the perfection and... Uh, the way that God created you. But anyway, you can think about that too. So. <laughs> yeah. People ask that question, well, how old are you in heaven? Well, there's no time, right? Yeah, there's no time in heaven. So you can't really say you're going to be a certain age or anything like that, but you will be truly who you are. Yeah, in, in the aspects of yourself, you really should love who you are um, because... You will change and all that stuff, but who you are in your essence, you know, even your body is something that God made, and there's something special about everyone and their uniqueness. Of course, we're all self-conscious, and we don't want to believe that, but anyway, that's the way it is. Some people will say the earth is being transformed into heaven, but the scriptures say heaven and earth are newly created. So I think it's similar to some people have a hard time with the resurrection of the body because it makes it sound so physical. And in the same way, people have a hard time with the resurrection of the earth, like this new heavens and new earth, because they say, well, maybe the earth just disappears. And some people kind of imagine it that. But what the scriptures say actually consistently is that the earth will be transformed in a way that I just mentioned. So, like I said, you can think about this stuff. It's fun. So, kind of like a 
It's a remodel, but it totally transforms the prior. It still is what it is, but it's being transformed into something greater. You can just imagine it. How does a resurrected body know? I don't know. I mean, how does it look? I don't know. Um, We won't know, but we will be in a resurrected body someday. And that resurrected body will be who we truly are. It will be a real body. But we don't know exactly how all that works. Anyway, keep thinking about it. Well, keep thinking about it. I don't know. So I'm just giving you the outline. You can can be the Thomas Aquinas's and try to imagine it. All right, so we're moving on to John. So we have the letters of John. There's 1 John, which is is the longest of the three letters, and and uh, Second John is the shortest um, book in the Bible there, or the New Testament. And Three John is the uh, second. You know, it's it's got the least verses. So one's the shortest actual words, and one has the fewest verses. So, but one John's the longest. They they do kind of follow this similar pattern that we've talked about. And first of all, you've got in John because now we're starting to trying to get over to a different way of uh, writing. John, um, whether it's the Gospel of John or 1 and 2 and 3 John or even the book of Revelation, um, tends to be very um, strong when it comes to showing a dualistic uh, sort of imagery to try to prove his point or get his point across. So he'll use things like light and darkness, uprightness and sin, love and hatred, truth and lies, spirit and world, you know, so he uses these sort of dichotomies uh, to show a difference in the Christian um, decision and the Christian dispensation or way. And these repeat throughout the different letters and gospels. First John is the longest. If you want to know something about the background of John, maybe go back to the gospel of John. We'll talk a little bit more in the book of Revelation, but for now, just kind of know that this is in the style of literature that would be um, literature that's similar with the Gospel of John, 1, 2, and 3 John in the book of Revelation. Um, First John is the longest of the three letters that this was developed as a letter to the churches in Asia, and the churches in Asia, think Turkey. Back then they're saying Asia Minor. It also would include probably Syria and some of those other areas down, uh, Lebanon and all that, but um, primarily, he's probably thinking Turkey, which was called Asia Minor back then. And these different letters, um, people were being threatened by different heresies, you know, wrong beliefs. And so John wanted to correct those. Um, some also were being, the leadership in churches were being threatened by outsiders or insiders who were working to undermine the, the proper leaders, including even John himself. And so he wanted to um, call that out. And he also repeats patterns like is normal for John's um, style of writing. Remember when I talked about the chiastic uh, way of writing? goes back to ancient Babylon. But it's this idea of having multiple layers and parallels. So you will see something like, you know, God is light. And then, you know, and he who dwells in the light, you know, God is light. And those who dwell in the light, and God is light. You know, you used to get these layers and parallels it was a style of writing. It makes it seem weird for us because we're not used to it. Um, one example of something in today's style that is similar to that is newspapers will have a summary article 
and then they'll have the article which will relay similar information of the summary and then it'll recap it so you have some parallels that happen with a lot of journalistic styles of writing. So anyway, hamburger approach. You get the meat in the middle and you get the buns on the outside and you, you know, so just kind of think of it as that too. You know, you've got these layers like that. So as you're reading, you're saying, I've heard this word love a million times. Love, 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 love. How many times can you love? You know, well, that's because he's showing a pattern there. Um, it's a style of writing. Okay, so the basic content is love, love, love. A whole lot of love. All right, so one, two, and three, John. You can hear a lot about love. Walk in the light. Okay, so what does that mean? First of all, when he talks about love, he's being specific not to mean emotional feeling. He's talking about the sacrificial, committed love that is demonstrated in action and goes back to and reflects the love of Jesus for us and for all people. All right, so that's, that's what the love is. Um, because of that, we're supposed to walk in the light. Of course, remember the light-darkness thing? So light is where we want to be. Um, light, of course, is the light of Christ. You know, so we want to walk within the light of Christ according to his ways. And we do that in some specific ways. And going from the beginning, starting before chapter 2 and then finishing after chapter, let's see, well, almost to chapter 3. Here's the description of how we walk in the light. First of all, we break with sin. We keep the commandments. All right, and he describes keeping the commandments as love. All right, that would imply the Ten Commandments together with Jesus' command of love. And then we are detached from the world, and we're on guard against antichrists. Okay, so once again, if we want to walk in the light, how do we do it? We break with sin. We keep the commandments. We detach ourselves from the world. Remember the definition of the world, you know? And then also we are on guard against antichrists. It's plural. Okay, so anti is the Greek word that means against Christ. So basically he's talking about those who are, um, they might be teachers, they might be influential, they might be politicians, who knows what they are. But if they are working against Christ, we have to be aware of them. We have to be on guard. Because if we accept wholesale other teachings and other ways and other, other uh, um, ways of life that are against the Christian teaching, then those would be antichrist. So it doesn't specifically mean the antichrist. All right. So the word is meant very broadly. Does that make sense? All right. So then we walk in the light by doing that, and then we live as children by breaking with sin, keeping the commandments, and being on guard. Sound familiar? This is that parallel thing that I was talking about. But the first part's talking about, okay, well, we need to walk in the light. How do we do that? Here's how we do it. We need to live as God's children. How do we do it? This is how we do it. And he's showing a constant pattern. You know, break with sin, keep the commandments, be on guard. Okay, so it's just in the uh, second one, he includes detached from the world. All right, and then after talking about how we can do that, then he says that Jesus is the source of life, and therefore that source of that source of love and faith that we have in Christ should transfer over to others. So that's chapter 4, verse 20. Let us love then because he loved, let us love then 
because he first loved us. And anyone who says, I love God and hates his brother, is a liar. Since no one who fails to love the brother whom he can see can love the God who he has not seen. Indeed, this is the commandment we have received from him, that whoever loves God must also love his brother. All right, see the parallel again thing? You know, it kind of repeats, but you get the idea. Pretty straightforward. If you say that you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. Sounds kind of mean, doesn't it? Yeah, it was just as strong back then as it would be today. People don't like to be called liars. And so John is just saying, well, this is the way it is. All right. If we're going to have, Jesus says, our source of love and faith, it has to transfer over to others because there's that overall universal connection. All right, so second and third John. Okay, so these are short books, and actually you can literally read them in like five minutes apiece. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time, but it's very similar. To love is to live according to the commandments. Okay, second John, verse 6. To love is to live according to his commandments. This is the commandment which you have heard since the beginning, to live a life of love. All right. Once again, he's just repeating his, his basic theme. Incidentally, when you read uh, the, um, the, the legend of, of John as he's dying in Patmos, the island off of uh, Asia Minor or Turkey, when, when he was dying, the legend has it that he was, his last words were, you know, love my children, love children, my love, you know, love. <laughs> he just kind of kept saying that over and over and over, and, and then he died. But that was kind of the last words on his lip, you know, you must love. Well, of course, the reason is, is if you read the John literature, it seems to come up quite a bit. So, anyhow, John also, in the third letter of John, he's speaking because he is being challenged by someone. We don't know who exactly this person is. Um, he does mention a couple names, you know, and uh, where is that? Some brothers came and told you your faithfulness, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, beware of Diotrephus. I have written a note for the members of the church, but Diotrephus, who enjoys, who enjoys being in charge of it, refuses to accept us. <laughs> so... Anyway, so this is someone undermining him, undermining him, and so he's just trying to set the record straight. John is saying, I am an authentic teacher. You know, I was there with Jesus. Um, I know the gospel. I'm passing it on authentically, and he's not. So, so you know, don't follow that prideful way, you know, anyhow. And then once again, he says, beware of the false teachers, and then love, love, love. So same kind of thing, right? You notice that pattern, though. Even though this is John's letters, the basic, um, it was written probably in the um, later part of the first century. So it was probably somewhere around 90s or maybe even 100 in that range. And these letters follow that consistent pattern of we need to live our faith, persevere in persecution, uh, be ready for the second coming, and in the meantime, get busy. So it, it kind of follows the same pattern. All right, there's John. Okay, so now we're going to look at Jude. Hey, Jude. Jude's another short one. Now, there is a, a very strong connection to St. Peter. And there, there's a whole section, actually, in the, uh, in, in the middle that if you read um, Peter, 
Second Peter specifically, not First Peter, but Second Peter, um, there are some some very close parallels. You can almost read them together, and it's almost like there's a um, what do they call that when there's you have two things you read side by side, interlinear. So it's almost like there is an interlinear type of connection in there. So it is connected with Peter. They don't know which one came first. Some say Jude came first, and some say Peter came first. Most say that Jude came first, and then Second Peter came after that. But then some will say, you know, well, that's not really accurate because... But anyway, I guess in a way it doesn't matter. If you're going to follow the majority, then Jude would, would be the primary source that Second Peter, whoever wrote Second Peter, um, especially that filler part in the middle, would have been copying from Jude and his thought or even possibly his letter. So he says, uh, like, let's see, Second Peter, here's an example here. Okay, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3. He says, first of all, do not forget that in these final days there will come sarcastic scoffers whose life is ruled by their passion. Okay, so here's verse 18 of Jude. At that final point in time, they told you, there will be mockers who follow nothing but their own godless desires. And and actually, it just kind of shows that there's a very similar thought going on there. So Jude explains himself as being a servant of Jesus and the brother of James. So this is James, the brother of the Lord. So it would be, Jude would be a servant of Jesus and the brother of James, who James is the brother of the Lord. All right, so it's two brothers to Jesus. But when you talk about brothers, once again, you have to realize that brothers in the uh, Jewish understanding would mean close relatives. So it would be family. It could be cousins or nephews or even uncles or sisters or aunts. It would be that. And, and actually, there's a consistent pattern throughout Scripture, Old Testament as well as New Testament, that show that kind of thing. So somewhere, though, Jude is closely related to Jesus because he's, he's connected to James, the brother of the Lord. So once again, he's got a very simple message. Be well of fal- beware of false teachers. Be vigilant in the handed-on faith. Okay, so verse 3 will say that. My dear friends, at a time when I was eagerly looking forward to writing you about the salvation that we share, I felt I must write you to encourage you to fight hard for the faith which has been once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. Right? Fight hard for the faith, meaning keep the faith. You know, persevere in the faith. Don't let go of the faith. All right. Also, the uh, end of Jude has really the highest doxology that you'll see in Scripture, including St. Paul. And, you know, like when you hear these prayers at Mass, May Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or peace of the Lord be with you all. Well, here he's actually... He's really expanded it to a certain degree. So to him, who can keep you from falling and keep you safe to his glorious presence, innocent and joyful, to the one and only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, authority, and power before all ages, now and forever. Amen. I know. Pretty good, huh? So anyway, Jude does have a very... Uh, uh, a very good doxology, most developed doxology. Also, uh, Jude, you'll notice, talks about Enoch. Now, 
Enoch is kind of a shadowy figure in the book of Genesis, and he, he was a real person uh, before Noah. But there was what they call a pseudepigrapha, which just means intertestamental literature between the Old Testament and the New Testament that was not accepted as canon, but was very influential. And one of these is called the Book of Enoch. And it basically is referring back to, um, in this book when he's talking about, he's talking about Enoch, it was with them in mind that Enoch, the seventh patriarch from Adam, made his prophecy when he said, I tell you, the Lord will come with his holy ones and their tens of thousands to pronounce judgment on all humanity and to sentence the godless for all these godless things they have done and for all the defiant things said against him by godless sinners. So that's a quote from the book of Enoch. Many people will think, Enoch, well, wait a minute, he was in the book of Genesis, and they'll look it up, and all they know about Enoch in the book of Genesis is that he walked with God and was gone, for God took him. All right, so this is why there was a book of Enoch, because Enoch walked with God and then was gone, because God took him, makes it sound as if Enoch was, you know, like assumed into heaven, similar to the way with uh, Elijah and his chariots, you know, kind of going to heaven. And because of that, if you're going to write a book about visions and things from heaven, then you're going to include someone who was assumed into heaven, like Elijah or Enoch. Therefore, Enoch was a perfect um, person to connect with that. Does that make sense? All right. Incidentally, if you go to Revelation chapter 12, you'll see there was a woman in the sky, and, you know, they got this image of Mary. Well, once again, it makes perfect sense to invoke the image of Mary because she was assumed into heaven as well. Um, Some will say, well, that's not in the Bible. And it's like, well, it kind of is. It's just not explicitly in the Bible. But it also does make sense if you're going to talk about a woman that's visible in this kind of form that that would, you know, be similar to these similar things like Elijah and Enoch who were uh, assumed into heaven. Um, But either way, the connection here when you're reading and you find Enoch, it's talking about the book of Enoch, and that book was what they call apocalyptic literature, which is like the book of Revelation. There were a lot of symbols and signs, and the idea was you know, that the Jewish people are suffering, but the Messiah is coming, and when he does, he's going to restore all this. And um, the imagery and all this stuff is, is very, um, well, it's like Daniel, and it's like the book of Revelation, a lot of signs and symbols and, and uh, numbers and different things like that. So anyway... There's the book of Jude. Okay. Yes. Yeah, seventh from Adam. Seven generations from Adam. Now remember, the, the seven may not be literally seven. It might mean that it goes back to Adam. But I think in this case, it's going to be pretty close, or it might even be seven generations from Adam. I'm thinking it is. But if it's not, don't worry about it, because seven is kind of this universal number that means kind of in the fullness of time from Adam. Okay, so we're going to start the book of Revelation, but we're not going to get overly into it, because we've got one more class to cover the rest of the book of Revelation. So therefore... Let me start by saying the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It's not literal history. 
Um, it uses a lot of signs, it lot, uses a lot of metaphors and imagery and things like that. And therefore, people take those signs and images and try to make them into what they want them to be. And um, it, it's something that really bothers me is how people will take the book of Revelation. They have to know they're making it up. They have to know they're making it up. There's no way that some of the people with these crazy theories actually believe what they're teaching. There are some people I'm sure they do. They might be crazy enough to actually believe that. But when you're looking at the very obvious, anyone who studies Scripture and has any idea about how this is traditionally understood and then goes on to say, well, this represents China and this represents Russia and, you know, the United States, they're the eagle and, you know, they're making it up. So anyway, keep that in mind. First of all, there's a lot of crazy stuff out there. And you, you probably get it in the mail every once in a while. You know, unlock the code of revelation, the hidden magic of revelation. And basically, that's what they're doing. They're acting like magicians. Um, and the other thing that bothers me is when people think that the book of Revelation is a scary book. It's like, I can't read it. I get scared every time I read it. It's like that's 180 degrees from what the book is supposed to be. The book is supposed to console people who are suffering and say, keep at it because Jesus is in charge and he is going to win and you are going to be the ones that are going to be victorious with him. So therefore, keep on going. You know, It's an encouragement book. And these different signs and symbols refer to specific, uh, specific historical people and events that would have been around at the time that the book was written. So... It's not referring to the United States or Russia or China or Hitler or any of these sort of things directly. It may refer to different things throughout history because there is a projection to it. It starts out talking about the current situation, and then it says, in the future, there will be an intense persecution, and at the end of this persecution, the Messiah will come. And that intense persecution will be very similar to what we're going through now. You know, so there is a bit of a timeline to it, but in no way is it meant to be understood as, you know, this is this person and that's this person and that's that person. Only indirectly can you ever make any connections like that. It was written at the time of Domitian, and he had persecutions going at 95 AD. He was the Roman emperor. Um, some people say that it was written shortly after Nero, between 68 and 70 AD, and the reason why they say that is, you know the letters, the number 666? And uh, you know, that 666, actually, when you take Hebrew numbers, it's almost, by real scripture scholars, we almost universally say that refers to Nero. Because those who are suffering in the persecution of Domitian can look back on a similar persecution of Nero, and they're applying you know, this antichrist, or the beast, by this Roman emperor in the line of Nero. And so they're imitating all the same things that Nero did. And because of that, any time you hear it's like, the Pope is the Antichrist, and you just know Nero is, <laughs> is the Antichrist. You know, literally in history, that's what that means. Because the letters, six, or the, the number 666 refer also to a numerical sequence that happened in the time... Oh, hi, kids. All right, so those, those Hebrew letters actually have a numeric value to them. So if you say 666, you get letters that you can derive from those numbers, and those letters, surprise, surprise, spell Nero. 
Well, who would that refer to? The Roman emperor who was persecuting the Christians. So when people say crazy things like, you know, you know the Pope is the Antichrist, they're, they're basically making it up again. You know? So once again, you, you try to get back to the history, and it's really a pretty easy book to understand. Uh, most people don't realize it. They think it's very difficult to understand, but the book of Revelation is very easy to understand. You just have to be able to know what the symbols mean. Once you understand the symbols, and once you understand the timeline, once you know a little bit about the history, you can read it very easily. And you can understand what it means very easily. And like I said, the basic understanding of the book of Revelation is, look, I know you're suffering, but Jesus is Lord. He is going to conquer. He is going to overcome. You who are suffering are also going to overcome. Even all the persecution thrown at you, in the end, even if you die, that the Lord will be victorious, and so will you. you know, so keep your head up and keep moving ahead in the faith. That's basically it. And then on a timeline factor, if you want to look at the way that the book of Revelation is talking about, they're talking about this persecution that's happening, happening in Roman times. This was written, remember, around between 90 and 100 A.D. This is when there was an intense persecution of the church. And because of that, it's showing this timeline is we are in the midst of an intense religious persecution by Rome and the Roman emperors. And there is going to be a thousand-year period where there is going to be the church. Does that mean there are going to be a thousand literal years between the time of the intense persecution and the time of the church? No, a thousand means a long period of time. Um, 144,000, for example, you've probably heard that, right? There are 144,000 who are going to be saved. Well, okay, 12 times 12 is what? 144. And if you add 1,000, a long period, right, or a large number, that just means there is going to be a huge multitude of people who are saved. It doesn't mean literally 144,000. But why 12? 12 tribes, right? 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. Well, you're connecting Israel and the new Israel, and then you're adding three zeros to it saying a large number are being saved. So that's what that means. So it doesn't mean there's only 144,000 being saved. And just in the same way, that thousand years of the era of the church means that there will be a time when the church actually is going to be doing pretty well, not persecuted so much in the future. But there will be a time, a short time toward the end of that, when after that thousand years there will be this intense persecution. And during that intense persecution, it will be very similar to the persecution that was happening um, at the time of the writing of the letter. And then Jesus comes back, and it's all over with. There's a new heavens and a new earth. So that's what the book literally is talking about. There's an intense persecution at the time of the author, around 100 A.D. There's going to be a long period of time where the church, it's called the era of the church. And then at the end of that era, there will be another intense persecution. And then there will be the second coming of Jesus and the new heavens and the new earth. It's really that simple. And actually, when you start to read this, you're, you're going to see it very easily. And uh, we'll get into that next week because we're kind of out of time. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. May God bless you.